Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. We are in the middle of a three-part series called Loving Our Neighbors in a Time of Conflict, and we really get to the heart of it today by talking about loving your neighbor. Uh, What I want to drive at today comes down to asking the question, how do we best love our neighbors in a time of conflict? And you'll see as we move along that I'm trying to move from the general to, to something very specific. Uh, Not a general idea of loving people, but a specific application of what it looks like to love our neighbors in the city of Vancouver. Uh, You know, we're all over the city of Vancouver in apartments and townhouses and basement suites and homes, and and we're all over the place. Um, What does it mean to love our neighbors? Now, just to try and frame it a little bit, I think it's important that I remind you that the vision of Christ City and and the way that we uh, understand ourselves here is that we are a network of neighborhood churches. We are intentionally a a network of of smaller neighborhood churches that are small enough to maintain community, but that are large enough to do ministry in the city. Uh, It enables us then to stay small enough where each person who's a part of the body of Christ City is actually known intimately and intimately knows other people and have opportunities to serve to be the church, yet at the same time, we're large enough that we can maintain kind of a big kingdom vision of what we can accomplish in the city if we stick it out. Our mission is then both local, expressed in local neighborhoods, and it's also citywide, expressed in the way that we partner together between our three churches, and Lord willing, four and five, as we continue to plant. Now, Vancouver proper is a neighborhood city. It's 23 neighborhoods plus the University of British Columbia, and for the most part, all of us are doing uh, life in a particular place. There's a particularity to where we live and what we do. And if you're not in the city itself, you're, you're in neighborhoods nevertheless. And so you might be in Burnaby and Metrotown or South Slope, or you might be in Richmond in places like Steveston or Brighouse. But nevertheless, you're in a neighborhood. You're located in a place. And understanding that there is a geography and natural borders and boundaries to the places that we live, it actually helps us to focus on our neighborliness. And at the risk of sounding overly simplistic, what I want to say is that we are a neighborhood church, very intentionally. So the question again, how do we best love our neighbors in a time of conflict? I want to look at this in three parts. We're going to look at our literal neighbors. 
We're going to look at the importance of place, and we're going to look at the opportunity of conflict. Um, the second and third points are, are really simply applications of the first point. We're going to look at our literal neighbors, the importance of place, and the opportunity of conflict. Now, as we look at this passage in Luke chapter 10, we're dropping into the middle of a flow of thought here in Luke's gospel. So let me just try and catch us up to where we're at. Jesus has appointed 72, and he has sent them out there to go spread the good news. And they've gone out, sent out by Jesus to go and talk about the coming of the kingdom of God. And they come back with this astounding report. They talk about seeing people set free, and they've got spiritual authority over demons. They've got all sorts of good things happening, and they're thrilled. And Jesus says, that's fantastic, but, and it says in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, he was there talking with the 72 who had returned that he had sent out. They've come back having the the debrief after their mission trip, having a conversation about it. But there are others who are listening in, including the lawyer that you probably noticed uh, talking about here earlier uh, in the passage that we've already heard read. The lawyer is intrigued with what Jesus has said, and so he asks him a question. It says in verse 25, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now we need to notice that the lawyer, the language of lawyer in this passage, is not like a lawyer today. Uh, This lawyer is an expert in religious law. And he's there to check out what this Jesus guy has been teaching. And so he puts him to the test. In all likelihood, this lawyer, this expert in the law, was a priest who's off duty in terms of his responsibilities at the temple. Somebody else is rotated in to serve at the temple. And he has gone out to be an expert in religious law by checking in on what Rabbi Jesus here is teaching. And he's just heard Jesus teaching about eternal life with the 72 that he sent out and who have now come back. And he wants in on the conversation. So he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's a solid answer, and Jesus says so. He says, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So this religious expert has answered by pulling together the same two foundational Old Testament passages that Jesus uses when he is summarizing how to live a life that glorifies God. One comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, one from Leviticus 19. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. This guy knows his stuff. But then he presses in. Verse 29 says, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, he's not so much asking who he is supposed to extend his love to. He is mostly asking who he is justified in withholding his love from. And Jesus knows what's going on. But this lawyer wants Jesus to define who his neighbor is. Jesus answers with a parable. Verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, 
when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now the first thing we learn from this parable is that you should not put Jesus to the test. The answer is kind of like a very holy and godly smack upside the head for missing the point. And it gets even sharper when you realize that this lawyer was likely a member of the Levitical priesthood. Now add to the fact that the Jews disliked the Samaritans and that that dislike was actually a mutual reciprocal dislike. And think about when this, Jesus is talking to a upstanding expert of religious law and he tells a story where a Samaritan does it well and is seen as the one doing his true neighborly duty and it probably added a little bit of salt to the wound. Right? The lawyer knew the right answer to the question. He could rightly interpret the Old Testament law of neighborliness. And that's good, but Jesus was not looking for a right interpretation only as much as he's looking for an internalization of that truth followed by the action of doing it. Not looking for a justification on who he could withhold his love from, but Jesus is looking for an internalization of the truth of what it means to be a neighbor and an extension of that love. See, our hearing is authenticated in our doing. So here's what's really going on, right? We need to realize that part of the origin of the question that is being asked by the lawyer comes from a strangely narrow definition of neighbor, and Jesus is gently correcting him. Basically, the understanding that prevailed in the days of Jesus, the understanding that he is correcting, was that your neighbor was somebody just like you, who thought like you, who was aligned with all of the people that you were aligned with. Your neighbor to them was then somebody in your own race and social status and religious worldview. And Jesus flips that on its head, and he blows out all of those categories. Scott McKnight said the word neighbor means one's fellow human being with whom one has some kind of relationship. Next door neighbor, fellow townsperson, person in the adjacent village, government official who works in your community, etc. But the term was used, uh, was usually exclusively viewed as one's fellow Jewish compatriot. Hence, neighbor often lacked any sense of diversity. This is where Jesus alters the meaning of the term. And when Scott McKnight says Jesus alters the meaning of the term, he doesn't mean Jesus is altering the meaning of the term as it's defined biblically, he means he is correcting the wrong understanding that was held by the lawyer and by others in that community at that time. So the question is, what makes someone our neighbor? Well, in Jesus' parable, they are another human being in need. That's part of where this question comes from. If you wrongly define neighbor you can likely end up with some kind of idea that there are then groups 
that you are justified in not caring about and not loving. And Jesus is correcting this. So this is fantastic, right? Jesus is correcting a wrong definition of neighbor and he expands it out beyond people like you who think like you, who are aligned with who you are aligned with and people who are from your own race and your own social status and your own religious worldview. And he's basically blowing out all of those categories so that it means anybody around you in need. The neighbor love of Jesus knows no bounds. We say, praise God. Here's the problem. If you fast forward from the early 30s of the first century in Palestine to 2020 into the city of Vancouver, you will notice, I believe, that the problem today is not that we have too narrow of a definition of neighbor, but it's the, it's the reality that our definition of neighbor is too broad. If I say everyone is my neighbor, it can actually be an excuse for me in ignoring the second part of the great commandment rather than obeying it. If we define neighbor in the broadest sense possible, where it's a globalized, universal definition of all people, we miss the point. And we too might be rationalizing an incorrect definition of neighbor just like the lawyer. Jay Pathak, in his book, uh, The Art of Neighboring, said, when we aim for everything, we hit nothing. So when we insist we are neighbors with everybody, often we end up being neighbors with nobody. That's our human nature. We become like the lawyer looking for a loophole. We tell ourselves that we've got a lot going on in our lives, so surely the great commandment applies only to the wounded enemy lying beside the road, doesn't it? Since we haven't come across any of those lately, surely we're doing just fine when it comes to loving our neighbors. Okay, again, this is the point I'm driving at. Universal neighboring is fine, kind of. But we also need to care for our literal neighbor. So universal neighboring is fine because it's lived out in a local expression in a literal way. Jesus is assuming that his hearers will love their literal neighbors, and he is challenging them to open that up to include some people that they would have potentially previously felt comfortable excluding. And for us, it's different. We need to get off the feel-good wagon of loving the whole world. I just love the whole world. And we need to learn our literal neighbors' names. Nine and a half years ago, Allison and I were in church planter assessment sitting there and I've done all the preparation work, I've written the papers, I've done the online assessments, I've done all the surveys and all of the psychoanalytical questions that I've been asked have been answered and I'm sitting down in a room with church planters and pastors and missionaries and psychotherapists who are evaluating us and our fit for church planting. Prepared to answer all the questions, we're sitting down and somebody looks at me right in the eyeballs and says, tell me the name of your neighbors to the north and the south and the east and the west of your house. I kind of froze, and I, I thought I wasn't ready to answer that. And I said, well, our neighbor immediately next to us, and I explained who this woman was and her name. And I said, on the other side, well, I don't know their name, but I know their story a little bit. And thankfully, we lived in a brand new development in the city of Red Deer at the time where we were some of the first people to have our homes finished on the street. So I didn't actually have a neighbor 
to the north or the south, only to the east and the west. I was kind of like the religious expert in religious law, the lawyer who had a definition and an understanding and could give the right answer to Jesus, but wasn't practicing it. See, I could talk to you inside and out about the doctrine of the mission of God. I could talk to you about historical missional movements that happened in all the different continents in the world. I could talk to you through church history. I could talk to you with recent examples. I could talk to you about contextualization work and how to proclaim the gospel in a post-Christian city like Vancouver. And I could talk to you about plans and strategies and best practices to reach people who do not yet know him. I could talk about all of those things and I didn't know my neighbor's name. Our hearing is authenticated in our doing. See, Jesus was taking a very, a very narrow view of neighbor And he was expanding it for them to be more inclusive and universal. And my fear is that our desire for the universal definition of neighbor has actually caused us to neglect our literal neighbors. So here's a challenge for you. A little bit of homework if you're willing to take on the challenge. I'm going to show you an image here. You can see it on the screen. It says, who is my neighbor? In the center, there's a box that says, you are here. And you can write your address in that spot. And then you've got eight boxes around it. And here's the challenge. Can you write the names of all of your neighbors as it relates to the position of that household, whether you're on the 25th floor of an apartment or whether you are in some kind of a state area, you can still take this and apply it. So wherever you live, you know, at the end of a cul-de-sac or you live on a street somewhere that's busy and there's no houses across directly because it's a big road. I don't know, but you can apply this. Can you write all of the names and the basic information and maybe even go a little bit deeper? Do it in three categories. Write down the names of all the people who lives in that home. See if you can do that. And if you can't, just go introduce yourself. Secondly, do you know something beyond their name about their life? What they do for a living, where they go to school, the kind of family they're from, maybe the part of the world that they're from. Do you know some basic information beyond the things that you can sort of observe from far away? You don't want to, they drive a yellow car and um, they need new shoes. That's what I can see from here. It's not what I'm talking about. And the third level, the third point that you could add in there, do you know their fears? Do you know them well enough to know their hopes and their dreams? Do you know them well enough to know their struggles and their pains, maybe even some of their greatest joys? See, for me personally, this was a very difficult and painful exercise because I knew that I'd failed. So if you're sitting there right now thinking to yourself, I have not done a very good job of this, you're in good company. And you can change that today. And you think, oh man, I've lived here for three years and we've never introduced it. My neighbor doesn't seem to want to know me either. No problem. Somebody's got to break the ice. And so why not you? Have that awkward conversation and go, look, we've lived next to each other for a while. I always see you park there. I park here. I always see you get up in the morning and head out to go catch the bus. I always head the other direction. Who are you? And just have that conversation. See, can you imagine what might happen if you take every person within the body of Christ City and you multiply that by all of the relationships of everybody who lives across and behind and next door and next door and kitty corner and kitty corner and you kind of fill in all of those boxes. Can you imagine how that multiplies through the entire body of our church as we love our literal neighbors? This kind of thing charges me up because this is how people come to know Jesus. Our literal neighbors was the first point. The second is the importance of place. The importance of place. What does it mean that you live here and not there? 
Right? Place and proximity matter. You're not here by accident. Right? We are a network of neighborhood churches. We're embedded within neighborhoods intentionally that we might be a blessing in that place and live out the hope of the gospel in that context. Um, I've got a friend in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, and, and I was over there traveling on behalf of you to help them set up a Bible college. And, you know, I've been in his home, in his apartment block, in his neighborhood. When I was there, I felt no urgency to be a good neighbor because he's a good neighbor. Now, I think we should do anything that we can to help them and bless them and strengthen them, but not to the detriment of being present here where God has called us to live, where he's called me to live. I would, in fact, go so far as to say that God has not actually called me to be a good neighbor there at all. I may come alongside those who are neighboring well and encourage them, but that's not my job. And I know that can sound cold and calculated. Now, if I saw a person who was hurting on the road, I would help. The point is, though, that is not my geographic area of spiritual responsibility. It's not my neighborhood. Brian Loritz said, what if you actually viewed your neighborhood as God's assignment for your life, a divine call to engage in his mission? See, understanding the geographic boundaries of your spiritual responsibility is not actually limiting, it's liberating. Trying to neighbor the whole world is kind of like a river that's flowing that doesn't have any banks. It just flows and flows and flows, but it's just a big floodplain. It's all spread out. It's a, a mile wide and an inch deep, and it has no impact. But trying to neighbor your neighborhood like a river that has strong, firm banks that direct you into the place and people that God has called you to interact with and neighbor, that's important. Having boundaries establishes what you're called to do in this season of life, wherever you live. Wendell Berry said there can be no such thing as a global village. No matter how much one may love the world as a whole, one can live fully in it only by living responsibly in some small part of it. Where we live and who we live there with define the terms of our relationship to the world and to humanity. See, from the very beginning, God has chosen to exercise his infinite and glorious purposes through limited and finite people. God is omnipresent. He is present everywhere in all of his creation. We as his people are not. I take up approximately two square feet of ground as I stand. That is the place where I am, present, embodied. I would have a really hard time trying to love my neighbor in Chicago, Edmonton. Those aren't my neighbors. I trust that Jesus, working by the power of his spirit, has people there who are neighboring well. That is outside the sphere of my spiritual responsibility at this point in my life. Where we are really matters as it relates to the way that we love people and as it relates to the reality that God has ordained it this way. James Davison Hunter talks about this in a wonderful essay that he wrote. He said, God then does not speak through empty abstractions or endless circumlocutions. Rather, in every instance, God's word was enacted and enacted in a particular place and time in history. He says this, listen, in all, presence and place matter decisively. Nowhere is this more evident than in the Incarnation. 
See, we see this in John's gospel in chapter one. Eugene Peterson translates it like this, and I think the paraphrase that he has in the message of this verse is beautiful. John chapter one, verse 14 says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Everything I'm talking about here flows out of this beautiful reality. The second person of the Trinity entered into human history, was born of a woman, born at the fullness of time, and was rooted and grounded in a people and a place. Through his whole earthly life, he was faithfully present in a place, in proximity to people. Now, it's so obvious through the whole New Testament that we just basically read over it, we gloss over it, and we only think within the context of where we live and how we do life these days. But all of the work that is done in the Gospels and through the story of the early church in the book of Acts and in all of the letters that are written later on in the New Testament, it all happens in a place with a people in proximity and relationship. Jesus moved into our neighborhood and changed the way we think about being a neighbor. Think of the ministry of Paul the Apostle, right? He was sent out on a mission trip by the church in Antioch. He goes to all kinds of places. He goes to Cyprus and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, and then he kind of moves on. Later, he goes to Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Ephesus and a whole bunch of other places. He goes to all of these places. And you say, isn't that the feeding the argument that you're trying to take about being present and located in proximity to a people? And I would say, no, hang on. What was the fruit of what he left behind in his missionary journeys? People who had had an encounter with Jesus and stayed put, loving their neighbors and sharing the gospel. That's the fruit of that mission, that missional endeavor. Paul taught them what was passed on from Jesus. That the summation of obedience to the law of God was to love God and your neighbor as yourself. So what we're aiming at is neighborhood permanence that is rooted and grounded in neighborly love. And as we think about neighboring, I really believe we need to be thinking about our literal neighbors. We've talked about our literal neighbors and now just a little bit on the importance of place. And the the third point, the opportunity of conflict, is just another application of this truth. We're living in a world of conflict and pain and struggle. People are polarized. People are stressed. The pressure is on. Sometimes it feels like the kindling is all built and piled up and the paper is in there and the lighter fluid has been sprayed and we're just waiting for a single strike of a match to just set it all up ablaze. And I don't know about you, but when I see that, I see a world of opportunity. Right When you come alongside a neighbor who has been beaten and robbed and left for dead like the man on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, I see an opportunity. When I see injustice in the world, I see an opportunity. When I see conflict and animosity and bitterness and hatred, I see an opportunity. There's obstacles to be overcome, but there's an opportunity in there for us. The opportunity is only there, though, if you're willing to douse the kindling and the paper and the lighter fluid with the water of the good news of the gospel. You don't want to go in and be the match that sets off the fire lights it ablaze. You want to be the person who goes in and douses that potential fire with the true and lasting peace that's available to those who put their hope in Jesus. Loving your neighbor in a time of conflict means you don't enter in with partisan politics. You don't lead with your judgment. You enter in with the peace of God and the mercy of God and you enter in as the neighbor who has come to bind up the wounds that other people are just, frankly, ignoring 
or exploiting. You show up with good news. Russ Whitfield said, Jesus' followers don't sit in self-righteous judgment of their neighbors. Jesus' followers identify with their sinful neighbors and are moved by their plight. Jesus didn't dance on your grave. He emptied it. See, the parable of the Good Samaritan shows us how to enter into conflict as a neighbor. We enter in with mercy and compassion and we come alongside those who are bruised and beaten by conflict and we bring them the better story of hope in Jesus. And when we think about all of this, let me, let me close with this, which I get from Dr. Don Carson. When we think about all of this, the parable of the Good Samaritan is pretty straightforward in the context that we've read it from. But now remember that it's written in the context of the Gospel of Luke and that this story is told as Jesus is on the way to the cross. Don Carson said, who is the ultimate good Samaritan? Oh, in the account before us, as Jesus tells it, the good Samaritan is a figure who represents someone who actually looks after the broken, bruised, unknown man at the side of the road. He has no kinship with him. He doesn't know him. He sacrifices his own good. He risks his own life and he pays with his own expenses. Pays for that man's expenses. And in doing so, he actually uh, saves him from slavery. Because if that man didn't have any resources on his own, and, and you'll be reminded that he was naked after all, Then six weeks later, after the Samaritan has moved on with his business and he wants to leave the hotel, this man won't be able to pay his bills and he'll have to sell himself into slavery because after all, in those days, there was no bankruptcy when you couldn't pay a bill. No, this man, this good Samaritan, his generosity has saved this man from death and the good Samaritan's generosity has saved him from slavery. And it's a way of asking the question in this context, who is acting like a good neighbor? But when you read it in the context of Jesus on the way to the cross, the ultimate good Samaritan who comes to broken people, condemned to death, who binds up their wounds, saves their lives, and frees them forever from slavery because he pays it all. Now, the ultimate good Samaritan is Jesus. We're called to love our literal neighbors. We're called to understand the place where we find ourselves living. And we're called to enter in with neighborly resolution to the conflict of this world. And I think there's an opportunity for us as a church to really do this well, to bear witness to the truth of Jesus. If you're going to celebrate communion with your house church, this would be the time to prepare the elements. As we celebrate communion, we know, and you can see in the liturgy that we provided for you, that we are celebrating the work of Jesus on the cross, his broken body, his shed blood, as he died in our place and for our sin. If you're a follower of Jesus, celebrate that wholeheartedly with repentance, doing your best to be right with all people. Celebrate the truth that we have a gospel of reconciliation that both brings us into relationship with God and gives us the ability to reconcile other relationships. We do that around communion. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'd say don't celebrate communion, but I would say it hopefully and, 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 and clearly 
why you shouldn't do that is because it's an act for us of what we've already done. We have already placed our faith in the finished work of Jesus. See, we are sinners, we are lost, and we are broken. And Jesus has come along through his death and resurrection and made a way for us to be made whole. And those of us who are celebrating communion have come to believe that with all our heart. And so if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you too will be saved. And upon that confession of faith, you can celebrate the reality of Christ's work in your place by celebrating communion as well. So we'd invite you to consider that truth, reach out to someone you know, and find out what that's all about. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this good Samaritan passage. We ask you that you would help us to be good neighbors and that by the power of your spirit, you would equip us to love our literal neighbors. Uh, Lord, that we would be people who are marked by that genuine love and care and compassion, that we would silence all of the secondary issues to put forward the better truth of the gospel and that you would help us to live in that and in the power of it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.